Siridas. Megalama. Hey, Ken. How you doing, buddy? Good. How are you? Good, pal. How's your health treating you? Well, I'm hanging in there. How's your health? I'm fine. Yeah? Going through all kinds of tests and little things, but nothing serious. So, um, let me just talk about a few things. We have kind of talked a little bit more about some of the, you know, more serious concerns. Um, we've talked about this, you and I, before. Uh, everything from Buddha, Dharma, and its reception in the West, uh, the difficulties of bringing a new tradition into a new culture, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the first-generation pioneers, such yeah. as yourself, that get transmission from well, We can talk about lineage. pioneers and Upaya. Pioneers in Upaya, exactly, uh, and all of the pits and perils of you know therein. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, as you know, a lot of the Tibetans, Japanese, a lot of the cultures that we're importing religions from are also deeply suspicious of the West and its sure. capacity to, to understand Dharma. You know, it's worse than that. Like Japanese Zen masters saying you can't meditate right. in pants or in a chair, or you know, but. Who really, who really cares today <laughs> Well, but that's, but you I mean, talk about that a bit, because you had the same experience with the Tibetans. Same you know, you were I lived in Japan, Japan for a year. And... People would say, white people can't be real Buddhists. they say, okay, <laughs> whatever you say, you must, you must be an expert. <laughs> <laughs> You're Japanese, you must be an expert on Buddhism. <laughs> I, I wonder if anybody pointed out to both the Tibetans and the Japanese that Buddha was neither Tibetan nor Japanese. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> How many conversations do you have with Tibetans and Japanese? I mean, mine are very rare these days. Well, I, I understood. You know what I mean? But as you well know, that's really where the transition occurred, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, right. And, I mean, you spent as much time studying with the, with the Tibetans as any lama in this country, interspersed with your time studying with Japanese Zen masters. Yeah. <laughs> well... I'm willing to speak out about those things. Some of my teachers, you know, even spoke boldly about this, like Suzuki Roshi did. You know, that the tradition was too ossified and calcified and, you know, familyified and just sort of codified and deadened in their old country. And he was looking, you know, he came, he liked staying in California for that. I think that's real interesting. So on the one hand, you have the whole problem. We're sort of jumping from, you know, one, the jumping from the one shore to the other shore. Uh, you have the whole reluctance of the traditions to let go of mm-hmm. these things. And then once you land on this shore, in this case America, you met with a whole nother slew of problems. Right. And it seems that the sort of first half of the last 30 years was making the jump from uh, the other shore towards this one and all of the problems of actually getting off the ground, getting airborne from those cultures. And that means going through the Tibetan teachers, Indian teachers, Japanese, Korean, and so on. And now it's like the last decade or so, most of the perils are now how to get any Buddha Dharma or any spiritual orientation into modern culture without modern culture wrecking it, basically. Well, that's a real challenge, and that's, I think it's an interesting living discussion, you know, about not throwing boot out with the bathwater, or, you know, the pitfalls and perils, the opportunities and obstacles. Yeah. So, in your own view, what are some of the main uh, difficulties in getting Dharma into a culture such as ours? Well, one is the uh, speed, fast-paced modern society. Right. So, on one hand, you know, time seems short, everybody wants it now. 
Things are moving so fast. Everybody's so, quote, free and mobile. It's hard to dig deep, grow roots, get to the nutrients, you know, keep digging until you find the water. So 10 years of practice is not something that most Americans find appealing. No, that's right. No, you know, we live in a pill culture. Yep. Microwave. Yeah, instant gratification. I call it instant coffee mind. You know, just add hot water and you have it. It might not taste good, but it's called coffee. Now food. Add hot water and you have food. As one comedian said, I put instant coffee in the microwave and went backwards in time. (laughs) And that's sort of of how we want to do our spirituality, I think, is just that fast. Uh, So do you find that you've had to compromise to some degree your teachings because of that? Or is it more just upaya fitting it to? uh, Yeah, you know, compromise is fine to talk about, but one could just as well put in a more positive spin and say, you know, it's all upaya and, you know, does it really take 30 years of monastic training or 10 years of ritual and 10 years of philosophy before you can meditate? Right. You know, or do you need a three-year retreat to go through those practices? Do you have to learn the foreign language? You know, how much time do you save by doing it in English? Yep. Um, When you have tape recorders, you don't have to memorize everything. You can restudy it without memorization. Yep. So I wouldn't call those shortcuts or compromises. I'd call those advances. Uh, You know, so the speed also makes it more quickly accessible. But, you know, the downside of it, again, is sort of the modern phenomenon. I don't want to just call it the American phenomenon. It's kind of the modern dilemma of, you know, Everything new is good, but then what's new? Yeah. What's next? Yeah. What's new? Uh, so on the one hand, you have the fact that um, some of the difficulties are actually opportunities to adjust, adapt, and evolve spirituality to the present. Yeah, I think there are opportunities. Sure. And, you know, with the light comes the dark, and with the dark, the shadows are also nothing but light. So, there's you know, there's both by like commercialism and fads and, you know, whatever you want to call it, like the hotness of Buddhism in Hollywood or in publishing. Yeah. You know, the downside is the fads pass, but the upside is that the opportunity is here. Yeah. Um, I agreed. Uh, at the same time, it's not all sort of sweetness and light, is it? I no. mean, there's all, there are various approaches to uh, Buddhism that I think both you and I would agree are a little bit problematic. Yes. And so let's just, you know, run through a few of those. What There's comes- also the difficulties of the dilution of it, you know. Exactly. Just because you hear about it or read about it or visit the website or, you know, read a bestseller about it, you know, the kind of bookstore Buddhism yeah. doesn't mean, you know, now I understand Buddhism, what's next? Yep, exactly. You know, if the ten, you know, after some years maybe you could start to say that, but, you know, we're decades, but not after one encounter or yeah. one enli- so-called enlightenment weekend, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. So the dilution is part of the downside of the speed factor. In other words, if that's not done carefully, then you don't just sort of condense and make the teachings more appropriate. You can actually dilute them by yeah, catering both, to the demand for you right. know, quickness. Yep, there's both sides. Also the demand for, every you know, Simplifying things could be good, but oversimplifying them, then you fall into, you know, simplistic thinking. Right. So, you know, years of, of, of learning, reflection, and meditation, as the Tibetans would say, are necessary. Those three, not just meditation and not just learning. Yeah. So I think it's important to, you know, tease all this out. There's, 
Like, I, I think of it when I analyze my own work or when my board members and colleagues, we analyze our work, there's the broad horizontal dimension of outreach and breadth yep. and, you know, popularity. And then there's the deep dimension of depth, which might be might narrow and might only, you know, include one or five or ten or twenty Dharma heirs. Right. And then there are all the quadrants in between. Right. So part of the difficulty, again, is, and we've talked about this as well, it's one thing to speak in a way that you can meet people where you find them, and it's, it's to be skillful means in adapting their language, their philosophy, in order to more effectively communicate in a way that they can hear and understand. And then the downside of that, which I think both of us think some teachers have fallen into, is you so adopt you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans, that right. you so adopt the well, Roman language that it dilutes the Dharma way. right out of existence yeah. in really, really right. you know, horrifying ways, actually. Well, I would say, you know, when in samsara, if you do the samsaric way, then it's not Dharma, it just becomes something more, more <laughs> delusional. You know, it's like feeding a habit. So I think, you know, there has to be some spine or backbone or focus or essence. Like somebody like Chogun Trungpa, you know, I think that, that's an example for all of us of skillful means. Yeah. One of the um, things that I think even the traditional people have to kind of be reminded of is that spirit itself or spiritual realities or suchness or isness isn't contained in a particular school of religion or, or an approach. Those are techniques of finding right. or tools for finding spirit. Spirit is yes. the reality of this moment here and now. Right. And so teachings have to continue to adapt themselves to the reality of here and now if they're going to reveal spiritual realities here and now. Yes. And so I think that tends to get, we tend to confuse the tool with the reality. That comes back to skillful means. Right. So, you know, my own, of course, uh, some of my criticism is summarized in the phrase boomeritis Buddhism. Right. Well, that's a good, you know, that's a good way of analyzing it. Now, here's, let me, I'll take about two minutes and give uh, a brief overview of a little more theoretical approach to Boomeritis Buddhism and some of the things that are going, uh, that can go wrong, and then we can sort of talk about this for a second. Mm -hmm. Um, As you know, in the great meditative traditions, they're very, very good, and they have exquisite means of revealing several really profound aspects of mind and reality, and one of them is they have mapped out in exquisite detail states of consciousness, meditative states, higher states of awareness, states of gross, subtle, and causal uh, dimensions and qualities, and very, very profound in that way. They've also mapped out certain types of what could be called phenomenal stages. In other words, if you introspect your mind over a long period of time, you might see some things unfold in a general wave-like or stage-like fashion. The great traditions are full of those types of stages of Mahamudra, and not in any rigid, linear kind of way, but they're just sort of guideposts for things that tend to emerge if you stay on the path. St. Teresa's Seven Interior Castles is a classic example of phenomenal stages of meditative unfolding. Now, what the modern West has brought to the picture is an understanding of what could be called intersubjective stages or how actual context, cultural backgrounds, interpersonal interactions can go through stages as well. And these don't show up in meditation. And these types of stages are well known in the work of 
uh, Carol Gilligan, Lawrence Kohlberg, Robert Keegan, Jane Lovinger, Claire Graves studied the developmental line of values, and the Claire Graves work has been popularized in Spiral Dynamics. And what they find, of course, is that value structures themselves tend to grow and develop and evolve. And in just using Spiral Dynamics and Claire Graves, they found about eight major waves or stages of unfolding uh, consciousness when it comes to values and worldviews. And some of the relevant ones are um, sort of in increasing order of inclusiveness, red, which is very egocentric, me only, power drives and so on, very sort of third chakra. Blue, which is traditional conformist, um, nothing but tradition, no innovation. It can be very rigid, very, very anti-progress. It's classically associated with fundamentalistic approaches to religion, um, whether in the East or in the West. And then orange, which is sort of modern, scientific, rational, associated with the Western Enlightenment. Uh, the next one is green, which is postmodern, and it tends to be pluralistic, multicultural, sensitivity, um, all of the things that we've come to associate with uh, postmodernism and the cultural creatives of our generation. Um, and then the two higher stages, and there are ones, I think, you know, beyond these, but the two that they acknowledge are called yellow and turquoise. And those are basically what are called integral or integrative or comprehensive because starting at those stages of development, individuals start to integrate, pull together, and appreciate all of the previous stages and all of the contributions that they've made. And so you develop these sort of increasing spheres of inclusiveness and greater consciousness and greater embrace in terms of the growth of consciousness, care, and compassion. Now, to sort of bring that part to an end, part of the difficulty is that when you get to Buddhism and its translation into this country, if you look at the great Buddhist texts, if you look at the Avadamsaka Sutra, if you look at most of the mm -hmm. Tantras, if you look at the Lankavadara Sutra, these are turquoise or higher productions. They are mm -hmm. exquisitely high productions. Right. And my concern is that they're getting translated downward yeah. by many teachers into right. mere green. Right. Because there's a certain superficial similarity yeah. of language with Zogchen great perfection, for example. Right. Well, a lot of talk about oneness or interconnectedness. Yes. Exactly. Totality, but they're really thinking about, it's really kind of the... Uh, Below the medium common denominator, mediocrity rather than, you know, well, in evolving, interwoven, different dimensions. Right, right. Yeah, kind of the spiral, multidimensional, uh -huh. whole, you know, yeah. integration. Yeah. yeah. In a sense, it's fine if you're a turquoise teacher and you want to adapt your teaching for somebody who's red or somebody who's blue or somebody who's orange and so on. And certainly in the old countries, in, in Tibet, India, Japan, and so on, much of the background culture is blue. And so, right. for the popular Buddhism in those in yeah. those countries right. are no more than you know, Buddha loves me. This right. I know, for the Sutra tells me so. No, to get to green would be good. Well, green is a step up in that regard. Right. But my problem but it's not yellow or turquoise. Is that yes, is that they're both important. And my concern is not if a turquoise or higher teacher adopts green language as a skillful means with the understanding that that's a way to reach approximately 25% of the population known as cultural creatives. My concern is when those same teachers identify Buddha Dharma with that green value structure, which is a very limited structure. 
That's a catastrophe in a sense, because that's a direct identification of Buddha Dharma with merely a relative set of values like that. You know, the ones in this country don't quickly come to mind. I mean, I do know somebody in Vermont who I consider the clearest American of all. Yeah. And I will mention his name, but he's unknown because he's so sure. clear he stays out of it. It's Harry Namdas. Uh-huh. He was Ram Das's teacher somewhat in India. Really? He was, he's an American. He's about 65 or 70. Cool. He's the most enlightened disciple of Nimkaroli Baba, that, as far as I can tell. Yep. And I go to him as a teacher, as a student. Uh-huh. That's fantastic. And he's I don't fantastic. have any trouble with that. But, of course, the world doesn't know about him because he doesn't, he doesn't want me to tell anybody to come. And he, he has five people coming and sitting on his porch three nights a week. That's his satsang. Right. And he does inquiry or Zen or Zogchen. He doesn't know what to call it. <laughs> he says meditation is passe. You know, he's really deep and non-dual. Yeah. The popularized versions of these, which are green meme sort of dilutions down into mere postmodernist lingo, is becoming, in some cases, there are fairly well-known teachers and fairly well-respected scholars that are actually taking this seriously. And you will get you know, academic treatises on how Derrida is really doing the same thing as Nagarjuna with Shunyata and emptiness. It's yeah. just a well, mess. That's nonsense in my view. Yeah, and so that's part of what we're trying to do is is bring some clarity into that situation and allow some of the higher teachings of Buddhism to not be translated downward in that sort of reflex fashion without a yeah. little bit more care. It's a great challenge. <laughs> I think I, mean, I, have, I have a lot of devotion and connection with my own gurus, but it doesn't mean I don't have judgments about them also. Yeah. Because, you know, it's, it's not just one, it's not unidirectional, like maybe... They were highly evolved on the enlightenment spectrum, but not necessarily on the uh, interrelational or you know social democratic or I don't know what you know ethical or yeah. emotional dimension. What we call levels and lines. Yeah, yeah. You know, you've talked about this a lot. How high somebody could be in some way in realization, but not emotionally or you know in other ways. Right. Exactly right. This is very cool. Um, but I'd like to see more integral intercourse of various kinds. This yes, exactly. You know? After all that fragmented intercourse. Yeah, right. <laughs> Not to mention lonely, solitary <laughs> forms. Exactly. Oh, oh, God. So I feel, by the way, what is beyond the turquoise level, do you feel, in terms of well, you know, well, yeah. higher dimensions? Our sense is that if you take people that have worked with um, developmental or evolutionary unfolding like Sri Aurobindo, or you can even check in with somebody like Plotinus, mm -hmm. and certainly in the higher inner tantras, Anuttara Tantra Yoga, for example, there's a broad similarity of types of cognition that can occur. And these stages mean permanent acquisitions. So they're not merely temporary states or peak experiences or right. stuff like that. So if you look yeah. at Orbindo, his turquoise, and turquoise is roughly what he would call higher mind. And then he had about three or four levels of cognitive development beyond turquoise. Mm -hmm. And those included the illumined mind, then the intuitive mind, then the overmind, and then the descent of supermind. And so that's one way of looking at it. Again, those stages are only a part of what's going on. And there's, there has to be meditative states of accomplished there has to be these some other minimum development in other lines like moral development which is why the traditions emphasize sila 
jnana, prajna, mm-hmm. moral foundation, right. and then meditation, and then awareness. And all of those are things that we can start to track, in a sense. When we put all of these different wonderful, great maps on the table of human growth and development and start to compare, contrast, see what similarities they share, see where the interesting differences are. And again, not as a way to pigeonhole people, but just as a way to get a sense about what's actually happening. And so the theory right now, the best guess right now, is that if you take stage conceptions like Jane Lovinger's stages of self-development, mm-hmm. um, Carol Gilligan's stages of female moral development, Bob Keegan's stages of consciousness development, that what happens is if you take meditators, people who are meditating, and you give them the tests of stage development, what you find is that Um, Nothing can make people skip stages, but meditation dramatically accelerates their movement through the stages. And so you can take somebody, for example, the population at large, about 2% of the population at large are the equivalent of yellow and turquoise. But after four years of meditation, the percentage of of the people doing that moves from 2% to 38% at those higher levels. Mm -hmm. Now, that's astonishing because psychoanalysis can't do that. Psychotherapy can't do that. Role-playing can't do that. Meditation is the only tool that's been empirically demonstrated to move people through stages like that. Now, that's very profound. I mean, that's a very wonderful piece of information. Well, I believe that. And that's a very substantial body Mm -hmm. of empirical data showing that meditation can help people move through these stages according to the tests that we've given so far. And I think probably the reason that that happens is whatever else you're doing in meditation, you are witnessing, being aware, giving attention to the contents of the mind as they arise. And because Mm -hmm. you're doing that, you're tending, in a good sense, to disidentify, let go, not be attached to them. And that allows you to disidentify with whatever stage you're at and move more easily and quickly to the next higher stage as it emerges. And that's certainly consonant with the data that we see. It makes sense in terms of the data that we see. And one of the reasons that we're trying to have a little bit of an integral approach is that those stage conceptions, as I say, aren't found in the great meditative traditions. You can sit on a Zen mat for 15 years, and you'll never see anything that says, this is an orange thought, this is a green thought, this is a yellow thought, and so on. Right. The reason is that these types of stages are, you can only get at them with an approach, which is you actually take large populations of people. You don't look at an individual meditator and what uh-huh. they're doing. Right. You take you know yeah. groups of hundreds of them, and you, and you pose certain dilemmas or certain questions. So classically, um, Kohlberg, for example, would ask people, um, a poor man is married to a woman who has a terminal illness. He can't afford a medicine that would save her life. Does he have the right to steal it? And Kohlberg found that people gave three responses. The first response was, yes, he has a right to steal it. The second response was, no, he does not have a right to steal it. And the third response was, yes, he has a right to steal it. But the reasons given were very different. The first response, which was, yes, he has a right to steal it, you ask them why, and they say, because I can do anything I want. Reality is what I say it is, fuck you. Uh, <laughs> the next the next response, which is no, then you say, well, why not? They go, well, because that's against the law. If you break the law, that's horrible. You can't break the law. Mm-hmm. That would be terrible. And then the third response is, which is, yes, he can steal it. And you ask them why. And they say, because there are universal principles, life is more valuable right. than $22 for medicine. Mm-hmm. 
And so Cooper then, you track these people over time. And what you find, you keep giving them the test, you know, months and years later, what you find is that if somebody who starts out giving response two, if they change, they always change to response three, never to response one. In other words, these That's are... That's a hierarchy of... There, exactly. These are yeah. stages, not just... Yeah responses but stages so that's generally the kind of research that the contemplative traditions didn't do so as far as I can tell and I haven't seen any a lot of people have looked and we can't find those kinds of stages in the contemplative traditions so by combining what western psychology can tell us with these fantastic tools techniques and psychologies and psycho-spiritual systems of the great contemplative traditions then we start to get a much more interesting i think kind of overview of the of human possibilities which is very exciting actually well what i'd be interested in seeing is how one can using the word meditation sort of you know generically right. as you did right. how we can get let's say that 2% to get 38% you know progress or to right. go from 2% having that kind of progress to 38% right you know without it just being a you know something like buddhism for example but more emphasizing the principle the active ingredient of how awareness this identification detachment and so yeah, on yeah how the active principle you know summed up in the generic word meditation can be applied so yep. that Many of the most astute people can, you know, so 38% can get the benefit rather than just 2% yep. at this point or in the next generation. I and that way, preserving the active ingredient of the tradition, you know, whether or not Buddhism goes from 2% phenomenon in this country to 38%. And that would be, in a way, isolating, you know, sort of the vitamin C from the citrus fruits. <laughs> or penicillin from the moldy bread. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I agree entirely. Um, that's, but you have an interest in seeing that happen too, don't you? Sort of a moving yeah. it, yeah. Right, that's something about the breath dimension. Yeah, indeed. Um, so, are you optimistic about how Definitely. this is going? I'm optimistic. You know, well, things have been weighing on me heavily since 9/11 here in the East Coast and the war in Iraq and all the spin and well, talk about that. Bush administration, you know, and the corporate hypocrisy and everything we face, but. I think, you know, just looking at it in the longer term over the decades and the generations, that we have every reason to be optimistic. So, you know, I feel good about it, and I think we have to, you know, always keep hope alive, but also be very attentive that we're not just taking it for granted, that what, we're actually making a difference. What was the main impact of 9-11 on your orientation? Well, here on the East Coast, it was like a body blow. You know, I live near Boston, and sister had a meeting in the World Trade Center that day, which she never, you know, got to go to. She could have been there. And my brother was in Washington and got stuck overnight in a building, of course, in the Pentagon, you know, because when the right. plane hit there. And right. it was it was heavy. We all know people who died or people who know people who died. And it was a big wake-up call and a big shock. But also, you know, part of the shock I'm feeling since then is how we – closed down afterwards and everybody tries to go back to business as normal yeah and um how short a wake-up call can be and how strong our you know cultural and and materialist kind of business-like conditioning is to want to go back to norm what we call normal and pretend that these things aren't happening regularly in other parts of the world part of the wake-up call and the shock was People couldn't believe that it could happen here, but it's been happening in other places for a long time. Right. And only a few thousand people died that day. It was terrible, but it's because it was our people that people were so upset. 
Because these things have been going on in other parts of the world a lot over recent times, in the Balkans and in Africa and so on, you know, in Ireland and terrorism and loss of civilian life and all kinds of things. So it's, it's very... Uh, there's a lot, been a lot of stress. I think half the people in New York and Boston, Washington, are experiencing post-traumatic stress syndrome since yeah. then. And a lot of that, of course, is not well treated or well understood yeah. by the general populace. So there's a lot of stress, and it's a cause for compassion. I've been feeling it's incumbent upon me to stay a little more informed. I'd say my most difficult practice in the last year or two has been paying a little more attention to the news and the newspapers yeah. so that I'm not an uninformed authority figure speaking from the pulpit. Right. As I so often see happening, uh, I really you know, don't want to perpetrate that kind of uh, now-mindedness by being uninformed and speaking about these things because people inevitably ask. On the other hand, I think I'm also more called to meditate and to pray and to do things for the long term. Right. You know, not right. not obsessed too much about Ralph Nader and, you know, the Supreme Court in the last election or things like that that some people I was just in Oregon, you know, people are still obsessing about that. <laughs> and that's all well and good, but I think I like to think more about the present and the future and, and do something different. Yeah. Find another way. So what's your recommendation to those people under those circumstances? Did you say something? Well, I think we have to let go of, of who we think we are, who we used to be, and find out what's real and who we really can be. Yeah. And, you know, not just think about that. That was kind of like a World Series that, you know, if we're Democratic kind of thinkers, we lost. But there are other years. And, and even now, you know, why is it that we have such limited alternatives to this Bush regime? Who, who's going to run in the next election? Is there a viable candidate? You know, why, why are the conservative Republicans and conservative right religiously carrying, uh, sort of winning the field? Where is the liberal left? Where is the, where is the liberal religious speakers? Uh, I feel like, you know, we're missing something and we need a little more analysis and reflection and, and uh, conversation perhaps to learn a little more, a little more of what I like to call higher education. Yeah. Not just college and graduate school, yeah. but you know, about the interconnectedness and causes and origins of all life and our responsibility and part in this. So there's more voter turnout, there's more social and spiritual activism, uh, and, and so forth. Jim Garrison, as you know, the founder of the State of the mm -hmm. World Forum, calls it a uh, neoconservative juggernaut, and he says he's just alarmed, it, speaking for himself, his personal opinion is that he's alarmed at just how unstoppable in this country the thing seems to be and how disturbed the rest of the world is at, in a sense, what America is doing. And whether you agree with it or not, America seems to, 9-11, one argument is that America almost kind of regressed in a certain sense. It went from a kind of a an orange to green orientation, certainly with, with people like Bill Clinton and Al Gore, right down to blue fundamentalist, ethnocentric, um, you know, uh, conservative, uh, represented by the present president by his own admission and yep. around the world that's very alarming certainly to european countries and so on and well i think we squandered a lot you know all the goodwill that we had after 9 11 and yeah also we kind of recoiled sort of from as you were saying a, you know a, a more green administration and outlook it's kind of like under attack we recoiled into our sort of amphibian brain or reptilian brain sort of fight or flight response exactly that fits well with you know the 
cowboy from Texas approach to us or them and wanted dead or alive, you know, presumably, preferably dead. Uh, uh, so well. This does relate to what we were talking about before, I think, Ken, about spiral evolution yeah. and um, going wider, deeper, broader, not just higher, but right. you know, evolving, not... And it's not necessarily linear, but, you know, we, we regress at our own cost. Yeah. And there is a cost. And I think in terms of American civilization, we may be, you know, heading over the hill if we're not careful. It's a perilous time. So I, I, I'm pessimistic about this upcoming election, but, you know, looking forward to the next 5 or 10 or 20 years. And I also think that uh, some of us have to think about how we can have our say or, or make a difference or... Uh, like Roger likes to say, Bucky used to say, you know, be trim tabs. Be trim tabs. Um, um, Mike the, Murphy calls it social acupuncture. Yeah. And we have to find those points where making a fine point makes a huge difference because yeah. it's connected to many other, you know, parts of the yeah. whole. Yeah. Um, I, and I do think that, that spirituality offers an opportunity to that. And again, I'm talking about Dharma rather than just any particular ism, Buddhism otherwise. Sure. It's, you know, it's an evergreen subject because people, I mean, some people even say America is the most religious country in the world. I find those words kind of ludicrous, but I know what they mean. Yeah. So, you know, real spirituality, whatever that means, which we have to, you know, make ring true. Yeah. Authentic spirituality, true liberating and freeing dharma, you know, noble dharma, not isms and schisms, can continue to play a role and even a, a more important role if if there's some of us who can who are up to that, I think that comes back to us. Right. We have to. Some of us have to be up to it. It doesn't matter what the names are, but there has to be, you know, a certain amount. So should bodhisattvas be politicians? If that's their uh, kind of path, why not? <laughs> no, like Dag Hammarskjöld, he certainly and Utan, they certainly were. Yep. Or Gandhi. Yep. But it's tricky. It's tricky to play with the levers of power, or you know, get in the swamp. You get soaked with the swamp juice. <laughs> I, I don't know that I've ever said this before. I go to a lot of meetings and conferences. I never hear spiritual people talk about power. Everybody's afraid to think about it. Yeah. And maybe me too. But there it is. So, so some other people who maybe are less conscientious and not afraid to talk and think about it and, you know, sort of like business people who will do whatever needs to be done. Well, there's, there's an old it's quote from Edmund Burke that I think is really important and applies directly to power. And he said, in order for evil to triumph, all that's necessary is that good men and women do nothing. Yeah, right. And it's very, very similar with power. If we're yeah. afraid of it, if we don't want to talk about it, fine. We do nothing, and it will triumph. I think it would be good for us to study power and where true power comes from and, you know, the difference between, like, spiritual power and the power of purity on one hand and mere force and power over other people on the other hand yeah. and sort of everything in between yeah. and really see what is significant about how to be a positive influence in the world, how to right. be, you know, powerful and how to embody it and how to be the changes we need to see, as Gandhi says and everybody's quoting, and, you know, how to have find the power within ourselves and within each other and our connections to make that happen, not just feel like we're helpless or we, we're waiting for a leader to pull us along. We have to be those leaders. I think that's a message we have to think about today. Well said, my friend.